All right. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 19th, and you are tuned into the Weekend Debrief here on FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Ted Baker of Finger Lakes News Radio. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on WGVA and WAUB. Ted, welcome back. We are here. And is the uh, broadcast transition complete yet? Uh, almost happening. My patch on my jacket will change soon. The FM frequency <laughs> of WGVA is moving to 106.3 uh, on or close to December 1st. I think it might actually be on December 1st. It has to do with FCC regulations covering what are called translators, uh, where low-powered AM stations can have an FM frequency because FM remains consistent at night. So it should be the same coverage area as always. It'll just be 106.3, 12.40 a.m. That's not going anywhere. That's been the same for 70 years. So uh, right around December 1st will be 106.3. And that will be that. Uh, so a whole bunch to talk about today, honestly. We've got uh, a lot of interesting things going on. And, of course, yesterday, fireworks in Albany. Uh, the big question afterwards, has the governor finally gone too far? At a press conference on Wednesday uh, Governor Cuomo lashed out at reporters who asked pretty legitimate questions, I think, uh, about the state's COVID response in particular uh, with regard to New York City schools. Uh, they announced that they were going fully remote yesterday, um, and I didn't hear any end date for that. So I believe that's just a permanent going remote until this thing gets under control or until uh, infection rates at least drop below uh, 3%, it would seem. Uh, he made a uh, Governor Cuomo. He made a pretty crass, uh, fat joke at one point during the press conference. Uh, it was just kind of a weird, weird hour-long sort of scrum between he and reporters, and the things that followed afterward. Obviously, lots of criticism of law enforcement for not uh, publicly, or I should say, for the public stance that a lot of sheriffs took around the state. Uh, over the last few days with regard to enforcing the private gathering limitations that the state is trying to impose, that being 10 or fewer only inside private residences. Of course, a lot of focus on that because we are approaching uh, Thanksgiving and presumably some people will be getting together and we actually will be talking a little later about um, uh, Poll that came out earlier this week as well on that front. Uh, the big question, and I, I heard it discussed a little bit this morning on the radio, Ted, uh, has the governor gone too far? And, and what is your sort of take now on uh, that press conference yesterday? This is what I, I want to throw this out there. This is what a lot of us in the media had been actually asking for. He's been doing the phone, the phone briefings and the phone conference calls uh, pretty steadily for the last, say, three weeks or so. Now that infection rates are starting to grow and we're starting to see more uh, potential regional crackdowns on uh, business and schools and things like that. I think a lot of us in the media are looking for that daily face-to-face -face interaction, so more questions can be asked and things like that. Um, what's what's your take on, on how everything went yesterday and what your expectations are now moving forward? Well, I don't think we have a flurry of law-breaking sheriffs across New York State. What we have is the recognition that this mandate is unenforceable. So, and, and Governor Cuomo is not the only one to have gone there. It's one thing to mandate something and give it the force of law through executive order. It's another to use the bully pulpit to persuade. 
There's nothing wrong with saying, look, I love Thanksgiving, we all love Thanksgiving, but we have to do it different this year. We have to. Please, if you're going to have Thanksgiving, take the safety precautions. If at all possible, stay home, limit the groups. Nothing wrong with that. The problem becomes when you make it a mandate and insist that it be enforced, and what these sheriffs are saying essentially is, we don't have the resources to do this. How can you enforce such a mandate? You can't enter a home without a search warrant. You come knock on my door, and I say, okay, go get a search warrant. I don't know how many judges are sitting around in their chambers on Thanksgiving Day to issue search warrants to look for 11 people in a house. So it was just, it's overreach by the governor, which we've seen a lot of, uh, and, and it's also just that arrogance. I mean, the one particular reporter, uh, I don't remember which outlet he was from. Wall Street Journal. It was, thank you. It was the Wall Street Journal. Just asked a perfectly reasonable question. And, and you know, we're back to this. This county's gone from yellow to orange, and this area has been added to the yellow zone, and this area is not in the yellow zone, and this area might be in the zone. And, and he's asking, essentially, how are people supposed to keep up? And he just got a flippant, arrogant answer from the governor. And I think that's what angers people the most. I, I gave the governor credit when he did the microcluster categories, because like you said, and, and I think you were right, it represents an understanding that it's better to target small areas than shut down big areas. But it's, it's just the arrogance of the governor. He's just become very, very enamored with the sound of his own voice. And so he rushes back before the cameras again and starts issuing edicts again. So one of the things that stuck out to me was, and I, I want to jot down a couple notes there because you just triggered my memory on a couple things. Uh, Cuomo did backpedal a bit, like right immediately after he, he made the point about the sheriffs basically picking and choosing what laws they were going to enforce. He turns around and he also says, I'm not asking law enforcement to go door to door. I'm asking law enforcement if they are made aware of something or if they see something to break it up. And it's just very interesting because I think this goes back to the the broader issue that we've had throughout the pandemic where, you know, we did a couple months, well, it's probably been about a month now, we did a, a deep dive on the eviction moratorium or what the governor has been calling throughout the pandemic an eviction moratorium. And what we were told was by the, the folks who, who are advocating for renters across the state is that it wasn't a moratorium at all. It was a, a pause on basically certain court actions. And then on top of that, it gave those who were in a situ uh, an eviction situation a new clause to use in court but it didn't prevent an eviction situation from actually playing out it's complete in that situation it was completely up to the the judge's discretion on individual cases and you have hundreds of judges across the state and clearly it isn't when 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 the governor comes out in a press conference and says moratorium the average person listening is going to immediately think, oh, that means a blanket kill on whatever this thing is that we're talking about. And the same goes for this. Like when people hear like uh, when people hear the governor say no more than 10 people per household per mm, event, <laughs> 
in private residences or else they immediately think, oh, that means, you know, people are going to be coming to my door and, you know, and there's going to be something truly enforceable here where that just isn't the case. The things that the governor and frankly, the state at large has said do not align with what the actual language is inside the various orders. Now, I I say that because I think it's very interesting that when he was uh, going back and forth with Jimmy V from the, the Wall Street Journal, there was this, he kept saying, read the law, read the law, read the laws. And it's interesting because if you read the laws, you are going to see how unmatched they are to the, and he should know this. Well, I don't think the governor reads a lot of his own laws. Remember the theater reopening a few weeks back when he's sitting there at the news conference saying 50 people per screen. I don't know what that means. Well, if you don't, then how are we supposed to? Well, and then he also made the the remark yesterday uh, at one point while he was in that back and forth exchange with reporters when things did really get tense. Uh, he kept saying report facts. And it's very interesting that we see this governor, and this is not this is not new. For anybody who is listening to this right now, uh, the governor taking this tact or this approach with reporters in general, being hostile towards them, getting into arguments with them, uh, frankly, handling himself as poorly as Donald Trump does with, with the press, it's not unusual. It's not new. I, you know, I think it was three plus years ago, uh, we, we and a lot of other local media had covered uh, a, a groundbreaking ceremony or some sort of ceremony that took place down in Tompkins County. And the governor made jokes about burying reporters. I, I mean, it, this is not something new for him. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of, uh, you kind of got to go down the rabbit hole a bit to, to find it because it doesn't get the attention that, you know, coverage of the president treating the press badly does, but it's just as much a legitimate thing. And at the end of the day, I, I think the, the press corps in Albany are probably going to be even more on their game now moving forward. And if this is going to be the norm moving forward in terms of uh, Cuomo transitioning to these uh, daily briefings, video daily briefings like he had done before, uh, probably a good thing to tune into these because I think there's probably going to be a lot more examples of the governor just not uh, not being fully honest with uh, the press and also, frankly, with the, the state at large in terms of what weight actually is carried with the various orders that are pushed out by New York. I think the reason he reacts as he does, you mentioned President Trump, and I think there's an apt comparison there. I'm sure that Governor Cuomo is truly stunned that all of New Yorkers aren't thankful for the job he's done keeping us safe. I mean, that's how he sees himself. He wrote a book about how he beat COVID while it was still going on. So I, I think I, I think he just truly can't understand any pushback or why anybody would have any trouble with the things that he's done. Yeah, and, and this isn't necessarily something that I think is going to be changing anytime soon. And I'm... I'm a little curious, like you said, um, is there a disconnect between the state officials who are carrying out the various things that Governor Cuomo is asking them to and the governor and his ideas? And if that's really what's at play here, that's real the real challenge that they're trying to navigate. I think 
what we're seeing is that we all want our lives back. I think we're all willing to sacrifice to a certain extent, but we've been sacrificing in one way or another for eight months. And for what? When is this going to end? When? What's the point? I, I mean, we, we see COVID go up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. I think in a lot of people's minds, they just see it as it's going to do what it's going to do. And my getting together with eight or ten friends for Thanksgiving isn't really going to make a big difference. I mean, there, there's there's a certain amount that we can be pushed. And I think there's also uh, a, just a generational change. I wasn't alive for the World War II generation, but the, the people who were are probably laughing a little bit. These were people that you had to get ration cards to buy gasoline or, you know, all kinds of household staples. And, and people did it, for the most part, from what I understand, fairly willingly and, and fairly cheerfully. Yeah, and, and to that end, uh, let's get into that a little bit, get into uh, Thanksgiving and what the expectations are for that. Because I, I thought the, the, and of course, we've talked about polling before and how it can be accurate and can be inaccurate. Uh, but the, the latest Santa College poll I thought was pretty interesting because it indicated that uh, more than 40% of respondents still plan on gathering for Thanksgiving uh, to some degree. And then uh, for Thanksgiving dinner, and of course, around 50 or 52%. Uh, plan not to. But I thought it was interesting because that is probably a tighter split than I would have predicted if I were just making a general argument for one side or the other. I thought that it probably would have been closer to 65 or 70% in the we won't be gathering category and maybe only 20 or 30% in the we will be gathering category, which makes me wonder. Um, you know, I, I think when I listen to <clears throat> different folks talk about how important it is that we don't get together. Um, and when I listen to people, uh, those individuals make that case that everyone should just effectively be siloed off and isolated fully. Um, it's interesting to me that when they're making the argument, it feels larger maybe than it actually is in terms of how many people are adhering to that degree and how many people Frankly, those folks are also ignoring in their own camp who are sort of walking a thin line of contradiction, right? Because, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was scrolling through Facebook and, you know, uh, listening to or reading some folks criticize others for their intent on getting together for Thanksgiving, uh, but then having participated in a number of different events that, that could have easily been super spreaders over the summer and fall. And it's just interesting because you have this dichotomy of, of people that I'll say fall in the middle who think they're, they're further to one side than they actually are. And that may be more problematic for this whole spread factor than anything else because I think what you have right now are a bunch of people who think they're doing the right thing and think they're in the right on the right side of this this whole debate but in reality their their actions don't match uh, what the folks who are truly on that side of don't gather don't get together uh, are actually trying to to sell to them I think there's just a certain strain of, call it libertarianism or, or anti-government sentiment among Americans. They just, 
there, we can only be pushed so far. And I think for a lot of people, Thanksgiving has become sort of a breaking point and sort of a line in the sand that they're not willing to let the government cross. Because look, I mean, we're talking Thanksgiving now. Next is Christmas. We're, we're going to all be told we can't have Christmas this year. How do you think that's going to go over? That's why I say use your bully pulpit, be persuasive, but to just pound your fist and say you can't have 10 people and if you do I'm sending the sheriff after you, it doesn't work. So try something else. Yeah, and, and to that end, I want to get into the um, the frustration that we've heard now from local health officials who say that... that as they're going through the contact tracing process, uh, they're getting a lot of pushback. They're asking for honesty. They're asking for transparency. In a lot of cases, they're just getting straight up anger and, and frustration out of the folks they're talking to. Um, you know, like I said, they're pleading, and we've been listening to this now for a few weeks. Obviously, uh, we, we heard from health officials in Ontario County, Steuben County, Seneca County a couple weeks ago, where there is... They're trying to do a job that they're barely staffed to be able to do as it is. And it's, I can understand why some of those, those individuals who, who fall into that camp that you just described, that brand of libertarianism who doesn't want the government interfering in their life. Like I can understand that from a very sort of black and white, you know, clear, this is because of that. That said, you know, at what point do you just realize that they're just the messenger? Like, they're just doing their job. The health officials are doing their job contact tracing and getting angry with them. Completely mis misguided in terms of, of what that anger is going to change. It's well, not going to change a damn thing. You're, you're also, still going to have to quarantine. You're working against your ultimate goal. If your goal is to get the government off your back, then the sooner we can isolate people who have it from people who don't, the sooner it goes away, and the sooner nobody tells you what to do with Thanksgiving anymore. So, I, you know, I certainly have the libertarian streak in me, but it's in everybody's best interest to be honest about whether you've had exposure, and if so, get off the streets, get out of circulation, and, and tamp this thing down. So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We've had this buildup you know, all the way back to Ronald Reagan saying that uh, I'm from the government, I'm here to help as a joke, this increasing feeling that, that I just don't want any authority in my life, I don't want anybody telling me that I have to tell them where I've been. But to me, that's, that's the approach I've wanted to see since day one. That's why I was critical early on about closing down entire regions and essentially assuming that everyone has COVID. Deal with it like we've dealt with other outbreaks in the past. Find out who's got it and yep. keep them away from the rest of the people. And if you do that enough, eventually it dies out on its own. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously there's there's a lot to this, but you know, we had this whole discussion here about COVID in general. Um, the likelihood is pretty significant at this point. I'd say that big changes are coming after Thanksgiving. I think we're going to see a big chunk of the region, if not the entire region, Western New York and the Finger Lakes, both go into uh, either yellow or orange or potentially red, you know, categorization in terms of what businesses are allowed to operate and not operate. So that interference is going to keep coming. And it's ironic. You listen to, you know, you see some of the, the folks 
on social media who say we need to we need to push back, we need to keep our businesses open, we need to do this, that, and the other thing. It's like that sounds great, but when you're a business owner and you're just fighting to survive, fighting against the government, not exactly on the on the priority list of things to do. Well, we put a poll on our website, FingerLakesDailyNews.com, because the uh, Joe Biden's one of his COVID advisors said recently that a four- to six-week national shutdown would really knock the numbers down. And when I first put the poll up, the the trend, I, I think 50% or more said it was a bad idea. Now that's down to about 30. It's, it's roughly 50% say it's a good idea. Another 15 to 20 say, I'm not real happy with it, but I do it. And we're down to about 30% that say no way. So you know, according to that poll, 70% of people would tolerate a four- to six-week national shutdown. And also, this is, here's a question for you. Is You mentioned the increasing likelihood we're going to see some kind of shutdowns. I'm curious why we haven't had them yet. If, if as we keep hearing, Western New York and the Finger Lakes, which of course includes Greater Rochester, are now among the highest infection rates in the state, why are we still not any color yet? I, I, my, my theory continues to be that this, the state, meaning the, the governor, uh, without more aid or at least a little more certainty that a second stimulus package will include billions for the state to balance the budget, I don't think that there's the, the will yet to go there. And I think that's a big reason why we heard yesterday the governor not talk about moving Monroe County and or the rest of the Finger Lakes region into Orange Territory because, frankly, he could, going by the numbers. If you're purely going by the numbers and the the outline that he laid laid to bear in, like, September, I think it was, you know, we're there. Like, the region region is ready. So, you know, and again, we're looking at infection rates that are hovering between, like, three and five percent in the Finger Lakes region in all of the different counties. That's well beyond the threshold for yellow categorization and potentially even orange. And, you know, most of the region still isn't. So for for me personally, I think this is just basically caution. And this is the governor saying without saying we don't have the money at the state level to be able to do this because, you know, we had just, and I believe I first read it on, on your guys' site um, earlier this week where NYSAC said, you know, we've got more trouble coming for counties down the road, financially speaking. You've got the 20% that's already been lost. 20 more percent is coming down the road. And that's a trend line that could just continue into the future indefinitely, especially if some sort of package is not put together that bails out states like New York and, you know, frankly, a lot of other ones too. Yeah, we've got, uh, what was the figure I heard? The Rochester School District has a, a multi-tens oh, yeah, of millions of dollar deficit. Seventy, Yeah, they're in the 76 to 80 yeah. million uh, category. And, but that's, you know, that's, they had a large budget hole right. long before COVID came along. Um, but so let's talk about one other uh, interesting little state tidbit before we start to get into all the other non-COVID related news. Uh, this week, the state announced a new set of online training tools, which labor officials and the governor say will enable unemployed and underemployed New Yorkers to learn skills, earn certificates, 
and advance their careers at no cost in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, the program is a partnership through Coursera, which uh, with a focus on high growth and in-demand sectors, manufacturing, technology, and healthcare. Uh, examples of some of these, and these are just my, my personal favorites. Uh, some of the, the examples of the courses, programs, and certificates, how to manage a remote team, uh, business writing, marketing in a digital world, supply chain uh, operations, and my absolute favorite, powerful mental tools to help you master tough subjects. Uh, this is just, this is comedy to the highest degree because 80% of all these focus areas on, in the full list, and we post, we publish the full list on, on fingerlakes1.com. Uh, if you look at the full list, 80% of these are the areas where there isn't actual growth right now, uh, you know, digital advertising, marketing, and all of these things, uh, they've been hardest hit in the middle of the pandemic. Um, there's there's the reference, and this is the, maybe the, the really interesting thing that I keyed in on. You read the press release, and it speaks to the healthcare programs that are within this whole thing. Um, but if you go to the if you go to the website and you look at the full list, it's really nothing more than just like some basic like medical record uh, training and things like that. Not at all something that's going to be useful in the middle of a pandemic. And you know, this is you want to talk about something that just doesn't have any teeth. This just does not have any teeth. And it's amazing that anyone uh, can can get away with with pushing out material like this. It's just wild. So I mean, I guess you have to ask yourself: do they do they believe themselves that this is a real positive thing, or do they know that it's nonsense too? I, mean, I hate to say that. I you know, after a certain point, you don't want to be negative all the time and and put down everything the state tries to do. But these are the same people who couldn't roll out an unemployment system. And, you know, or later on, we're going to be talking about high-tech companies. That we, and we always talk about how government lags behind in technology. I mean, I, I guess it's a, they're trying to do something, so they should get some credit for that. But it does seem like not a particularly strong effort. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I think there's a, a pretty significant desire to see progress in this in this kind of area. But, you know, a, a lot of the community colleges are already doing it. So why isn't the state partnering with the community colleges to make those programs that already exist in a lot of these local communities free or subsidized or something? I don't know. It's just very interesting uh, because I also am curious, like, what weight does what weight do any of these certificates or these programs carry when you're actually in a, a job interview? You know, they're going to ask, well, what experience do you have in digital marketing? Yeah. And you're going to say, I well, I took test I, last weekend. And- yeah, like I, I have a certificate from New York State, from a company that New York State decided to work with. Uh, let's also talk a little bit about uh, in that digital advertising uh, space. Does Amazon, Facebook, and Google have too much control around the Internet? Uh, by now, you probably have heard about the lawsuit brought by the DOJ against Google, bringing into question how its search products work and how walled off it is. Uh, but this week, we caught up with Mallory Benjamin and Dave, Dave Chris from Dixon Schwabble, uh, one of the region's largest uh, marketing and ad buying agencies, to talk about ads and Google ads and how they appear and why they appear and all that. Uh, give it a listen if you're interested in learning about how they work or if you're curious about what might happen in the digital ad space if uh, the pending cookie apocalypse, which I didn't know was a thing, uh, comes to fruition in the next few years? I, I want to talk about this with you because it's interesting. 
we tend to, from time to time, have these conversations about uh, advertising, the way digital is sort of worked out and shaped, and then also now, um, how that affects local media. And I'm curious, like, this is one of those scenarios where I think, um, you know, if there is this sort of crackdown on uh, cookies, and cookies are the way in which uh, folks like you and I are tracked around the internet, and that's how those targeted ads wind up appearing in your browser when you're when you're moving around. This could actually be something that benefits local media in the grand scheme of things because it'll mean that sort of broad brush advertising will be in play again and be useful. I guess I, 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 Google's probably taking food off my plate, so I should probably really hate them. But here's the thing about Google. Every single thing they make works and works perfectly. When I Google search, I get what I want. When I put Google Maps on, I get where I'm going. I use Google Sheets to share documents. Uh, I, I mean, just everything they do works. So I'm not sure I understand the rush to try to break them down. The argument is, apparently, one of the arguments is that they've made their search engine the default in a lot of browsers, and many people don't know how to change that default. I happen to, but I'm fairly technologically literate. I mean, the comparison gets made. I think it's different. You had Microsoft, which made it virtually impossible to get anything but Windows on any manufactured computer. I'm not sure it's quite the same thing. If you want to change, I I can show you in about 20 seconds if you don't know how to change your search engine if you don't like Google. And and when it comes to targeted ads, I guess if I'm going to be bombarded with ads, which in this world, in any world we're likely to live in in the near future, we're going to be, I'd rather have them be ads for things I care about. So if Google discovers that I like craft beer and baseball and sends me lots of ads for craft beer and baseball-related things... I'd rather see those ads than random ones that are of no interest to me. So it's there's a fine line, I guess, between having an unfair advantage and just being good. A lot of people hate Walmart because Walmart has crowded out so much retailing. But what's Walmart? Sam Walton started with a five-and-dime store in Arkansas, and then he got another one, and then he got another one, and he was really, really good at it. And then he got more. And, and then they took over. So I, I just, are, is the message we want to send in America that if you get really, really good, we're going to punish you and tear you down? Yeah, I, and, you know, this is one of those, this to me is a scenario where if there were better regulations in the first place, if antitrust, various antitrust regs were, were really stoutly followed, over the last 30 years, we wouldn't be in this situation, but they haven't been. And so you have a company that has, like you said, gotten really good at what it does. And the services that it offers, um, you know, are are good. They're good. And everybody on everybody who interacts with the internet, I think, appreciates them for what they are. Now, does that mean that, you know, Maybe there are some issues. There aren't any issues, I should say, within search in general. Yeah, I, I think there are probably some issues with search. But 
the argument that be, Google shouldn't be able to do search or should have to separate itself from its maps features and its sheets and like you said, like all of the different things that they're involved with, that's like technology in general. Technology brings different things together and this is in the fundamental way a lot of different services came together under one roof. I guess the question I always want answered in these cases is, is tell me what they did that was wrong. I mean, before they we break pay. up a company, you know, they, they need to have done something wrong. And, and from what I can see, and, and, you know, you mentioned Amazon and Facebook, and Amazon is very, very good at getting products from warehouses into our hands. And Facebook, we might hate it. But it's very good at allowing us to post messages that other people we know can see, and they can post messages that we can see. So I guess I, I, that's the question that I never seem to really get a good answer to, is tell me what it is they did that was wrong to become dominant. If they did something wrong, and, and I'm not even really in a legal sense as much as a moral sense, if they did something that wasn't right to get where they are, then okay. But I'm not sure that anyone can make that case. Right. And I would also argue that, you know, even if you broke up Google, even if you you said, you know, we're going to do something that makes the way Amazon, Facebook, and Google do advertising, we make it change. We, we force them to change. I don't think the fundamentals change that much because at the end of the day, these platforms are still going to have just as many users. And advertising is driven by users, and maybe the the data that they they give or can give advertisers is a little less specific, or maybe it's a little broader or ambiguous, uh, perhaps. But it's not going to be anything that actually you know plays out to full scale. That I think some people, when they hear that, they're like, "Oh my god, that means." you know, there aren't going to be ads on X, Y, and Z. And also, you know, something that came up in our conversation uh, during that podcast was this. All of these services at their core are free. And that is the trade. So unless you want to pay for everything you're encountering on the internet, you have to, to some degree, accept the fact that your personal data, or not not personal data, but your at the very least your, your browsing history is going to be leveraged by that company to make money. Like, There's a saying on the internet that if the product is free, that you are the product. And that is that is effectively where, you know, that's where it stands. That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, it sounds really great. You know, we get, and part of the reason why, why I wanted to do this podcast was because we regularly get emails from people saying they either don't like the ads they're seeing or they don't, you know, they don't appreciate the fact that there are so many ads on our on our website. And it's like, well, we are a free service, first of all, and the service does not run for free, so we have to make money somehow. And also, there's, I think, a pretty big disconnect between um, how these ads are being served and what the user actually understands about that transaction. Like, I don't think most users understand how the ads are selected and then thrown in front of them. Right. You know, the number of times that I've had to explain to someone either on the phone or over email or over messenger on Facebook saying, hey, just so you know, I know you're coming at us because you don't like this particular ad that you saw as an individual, but it is not representative of all of the ads. This is this is something between you and Google. Right. And frankly, you're seeing that 
thing because of your own browsing history or your own activity. And we don't control it. I mean, we, we can't, whether it's FingerLakesDailyNews.com or FingerLakes1, exactly. a lot of those ads you see aren't, you have no control over them. Your choice is participate in the program or don't. And, and we both make money off of Google ads. Yeah, and you know the the flip side of that is if you want to dip back into sort of the ethical side of all of it, you know none of this would be necessary. You know, Google ads wouldn't be necessary if uh, local businesses advertised to the level at which it, you know a a product were sustainable. And at the end of the day, that's you know that's the fundamental issue. Google is supplementing where local businesses cannot or do not, and. It's interesting because I think in a lot of cases, and agencies like Dixon Schwabel uh, live this every day, but you know, local businesses are choosing to advertise with Google, Facebook. They're spending their money on, on Amazon as opposed to spending it with the, the radio group or with Finger Lakes One or with the newspaper, whatever the case may be. And that also is part of the issue too, where like this, the transaction has to happen somewhere and you know, could the, the Google product be better? Could the Amazon product be better? Uh, could the Facebook product be better? Yes. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. And, you know, we just, we got to live with it. Well, and I think in the local media, we have to do a better job. The, one of the attractions of digital advertising is the ability to target and track. You don't want to waste your money putting out advertisements to people who don't care. I mean, we, we always, in, in the radio business, in local radio in the Finger Lakes, we see, let's say a business in Geneva runs an ad on Channel 13 in Rochester. And we cringe because, yeah, Channel 13 in Rochester reaches a lot of people, but it reaches people in Chi Lai that aren't going to come down to this business in Geneva. I mean, that's one of the arguments for being local, that, that your business and ours both use, is that when you advertise with us, you're going to reach the people likely to come to your business. I, I think we can all do a better job in targeting people more specifically. And, and in, in the other thing is the tracking. You know, it's unfortunately, when you run an ad on the radio, there really isn't any great way for us to tell you what kind of impact it had, whereas digital can say this many people clicked and this many people did this, which isn't always as meaningful as they will tell you that it is. But it's people like that kind of certainty that I know my ad dollars are getting me this much bang for my buck. Well, right. And I think the other part of it, too, and this is probably something that you guys experience a lot in radio is like, you know, you know, kind of like putting the cart before the horse. You know, I think to some degree, and I'm no marketing expert, but I think to some degree, especially if you're a small or medium sized business, you need to develop some kind of brand awareness first before you start worrying about trying to sort of cherry pick where your your audience is and you know at the end right now I think it's harder than ever to try and cut through that and that's where I think you know the the draw is to local local media get to know the 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 media and the customers in your own neck of the woods before you start trying to target an audience that's 40 miles away and you have to do it consistently and over a period of time. There's a principle in radio advertising that says you need to advertise for the length of a product cycle to have awareness. Let's say that you're an appliance store, you're advertising refrigerators. How often do you need a new fridge? Every 10 years? So you can't advertise for six months 
Because then you're getting one twentieth of the people who are going to want to buy refrigerators. You've got to be in it for the long haul. That's The advertisers on our stations that have the best success tell us they're the ones that have been on consistently over a long period of time with a consistent message. Yeah, and uh, that's something that we've, we're going to be diving into again. Um, as the media landscape continues to change through the pandemic, we've seen newsrooms shrink, and, and we're actually going to be uh, having a conversation here, hopefully in the next month or so, with Steve Keeler from uh, Cuga Community College. Uh, let's talk about uh, a meeting that's coming up tonight in Seneca Falls. Town Board holding a special meeting at the community center tonight uh, to revisit the budget. So the board voted 3-2 late last week to use basically a quarter of the total landfill revenue that it will be receiving in 2021 to offset the tax levy in the general fund. Um, the original plan, or I should say the plan basically the week before that or leading up to the meeting was to use 1.8 or 1.9 million of it. So they decided to half that. So here we are now. Uh, we learned on Tuesday, Finger Lakes Times reported that uh, there would be a special meeting because one of the counselors, Dave DeLalis, um, wanted to change his vote. Spent some interesting conversations that have followed that. I thought it was pretty interesting where some folks thought that there may have been some uh, legality issues and things like that. At the end of the day, there there isn't. Um, up until a budget is is fully sent into the state, changes can happen as as often as you so choose. The one the one hiccup or the one area I suppose where there could be some uh, discussion, I think. And this goes for local laws as well. I believe if a significant enough change is made to a budget or to a local law or to anything like that, a second public hearing would have to be made, would have to happen uh, to allow public input. This is interesting, I think, because you know we don't see it very often where a counselor wants to go back and and change his vote or her vote. Um, but I think it kind of points to how divisive this issue still is for residents um, in Seneca Falls. I, my own personal view at this point seems to be that, you know, I understand that there's a, a strong desire to close the landfill by 2025. Um, but right now, the state, given the forecast that we're seeing from the state in terms of how hard hit counties and municipalities are going to be over the next few years. I think that there is a way for the town to move forward with pushing to end the landfill by 2025, but also maybe protecting itself a little more. So, you know, maybe it's a, a half, a third, a quarter, an eighth, a zero over the next five years. Um, but I, I'm not sure that this is... See, because now you're in a scenario where the, 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 the taxpayers are going to be pushed into two camps again. We're pushing people back into two camps again, whereas this was just a straight-up budget vote, like what had happened before. So you either live with it or you move forward with maybe a little better plan. But I, I think it's interesting the the... I don't want to say too much now because obviously the meeting is going to happen tonight and everything we're talking about now is going to be outdated. But um, just something that I wanted to, to bring up. 
can you remember the last time something like this happened where a, a town board or a county board or any any board for that matter went back and re-voted on something and had already done? I can't remember any recently. Uh, it's unusual, but it's certainly, as you said, it's absolutely legal. There's no question about that. If somebody has a change of heart, they've got new information, uh, there's no reason not to do that. I think it'll be interesting. We always kind of step back on these conversations and look at the bigger picture. And one of the pictures is going to be the need for revenue for governments over the years to come. Are people going to be less likely to be pro-environment and more likely to go into the pro-money, pro-jobs camp? I mean, will that landfill money look a lot better? Will, will people be more willing to accept potentially polluting industries if they mean money because we're our economy is going to take a big hit if we get a vaccine early next year and by i don't know pick a date july 4th of 2021 that's probably a little early but let's just say for the sake of argument by july 4th 2021 covid's essentially done we've moved on we're still going to be picking up the pieces for years and years and years yeah not really any doubt about that um so let's also uh, last story for the week here is officials in Auburn still working to seize an Auburn home on Delavan Street. Uh, There was a homicide there last year. Tons and tons of of calls for service to law enforcement to this house with lots of basically just drug activity. Um, But it's interesting, I think, because they're, they're using the nuisance argument and it's a rental property. And I can't help but think about this in terms of uh, rental regulations. Um, we tend to see this where out-of-state entities, corporations, or big businesses come in and buy properties that either need a lot of work or foreclosed or just aren't selling, whatever the case may be, uh, undesirable neighborhoods. Um, and once they purchase them, there isn't really any like repercussion for the local community to say, wait a second. Uh, this maybe needs to be a little different. The Auburn Citizen has had some awesome reporting on this particular uh, residence, this home. Um, but I'm curious because, you know, we've ta- how many times have we talked about there, there needing to be, even just in terms of uh, for future development, there needs to be a better understanding of what the rental stock looks like. And this, I would file this right in with that. Like, what does every community need? Well, every community needs to know what various levels of, of rental properties exist in their community, where the rent stands on all of those different properties, where the holes are in the market so that, that the community can move forward in a, in a sensible, positive way. And I would say the fourth leg to that is also uh, you need to have a pretty good understanding of, of what properties are dilapidated or are problematic for various reasons. And it seems like there could be, I don't know that a locality could come up with this kind of, of you know, legislation, or maybe that needs to be at the state level, but it seems like they're, they're, those four things probably need to happen. And this is probably the latest good example of why it should happen. Like clearly the, the landlord of this property is, is making absolutely no effort to try and improve it in any way, shape, or form. They're just, they're collecting their rent and moving on. 
And the problem is that the tenants who occupy these kind of apartments are not very likely and have really little motivation to complain about conditions because they don't want to get thrown out. I mean, it, it just it seems like there would be a way to say, okay, if we have these problems, you now come under greater scrutiny and you will be inspected more often. I, I mean, chances are, if you have all these kinds of problems, and I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if you could find some code violations and things. Uh, very often, places like this aren't kept up. I don't know. Do we know in this case, is this an absentee? Landlord or a local person? Do we know at, at that particular address? I don't. I've know. seen. I have seen no of of the coverage that I've seen, and there's been a lot of coverage of this. I haven't seen anything under. And I'll say, as as someone who's tried to look into uh, different housing and uh, some of these corporations or bigger businesses that own different properties, especially in the commercial space, it's difficult to track these people down. It's not like you know you see a you see a. a a name attached to an LLC, but that's it. Right. And, you know, it's very difficult and to figure design. out who is where. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those, it's one of those scenarios where I think, and to your point, you know, the 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 bill was signed into law, I want to say last week at the state level, uh, that put a 60-day clock on uh, court-ordered repairs at rental units across the state. So, like, we're going in the right direction. The state appears to be going in the right direction, I should say. And the the next logical step or the several next logical steps seem to be that you need to get this big, wide industry sort of reined in a bit. And there should, frankly, be better regulation around this because this isn't just, you know, this is one way that this situation can go bad where you have, you know, repeated calls and that's repeated calls to law enforcement, drug activity. That's bad for the neighbors. That's bad for the neighborhood. That's bad for the city. That's bad for everybody. It's expensive too. But, you know, it could also go a lot of other ways where it could just be like outright safety issues in rental units. It could be outright, you know, quality of housing issues. And without understanding really what you're working with, you you don't really have the footing to stand up and say, hey, this needs to be improved or this needs to change or these kinds of units need to be significantly overhauled. Like you have to understand what you're working with before you start to try and make, because otherwise you're just like, this city I think is in probably the least ideal situation it could possibly be in because it's trying to make an argument that the property is a nuisance which I'm not even sure how that exactly stands up. Just, just very, it's a, that is a, if that's their only play, that's a really tough play to try and see all the way through. I don't know if they've taken any kind of stance. I know that you've had, you've talked with the people from the Landlords Association in the Finger Lakes, and I have as well. I think that there's a role for them to try to crack down on landlords who aren't doing a good job because then it, it makes them all look that much worse so I, I you know maybe some peer pressure there might work the other thing I guess is protection for tenants so that they can bring up complaints because very often tenants who live in substandard housing the rent's cheap mm-hmm. so it's like yep the heat goes out every other week but where else am I going to go and live at a place that has a rent that I can afford. So I, right. somehow there maybe needs to be some ways that that tenants can get rental assistance or or assistance in finding better places at an affordable price. Yeah, I I thought it was pretty interesting because 
through that conversation that you were talking about where I had, I talked to the, the landlord association and I also talked to a couple of state housing uh, reps as well. You know, there's shared energy there between the, the advocates for tenants and the, we'll call it the local landlord associations to crack down on corporate landlords, because really that's what we're talking about here. Corporate and or out of state and or, you know, people who frankly don't appear to be in it for the right reasons. Right. And local landlords, I don't think are the issue from what it, from what we've seen in terms of the, the mass scale, the corporate, the corporate landlords appear to be the bigger issue. Uh, anyway, though, we've run out of time for the week. So let us know where people can listen to you Monday through Friday. I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva. That's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. Again, the FM will go to 106.3 in the next couple of weeks, but trust me, we'll let you know about that. <laughs> and in Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB. The Weekend Debrief is a production of FL1 Digital Media. Check the show out on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Have a question for us? Email it to debrief.